Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church today. It's great to have you with us. Good morning, everyone that's joining us online as well. We miss you guys. We hope that your summer is going well. Hope you you can join with us soon. Before we jump into our teaching time this morning, I just need to give a huge, huge shout out to everyone that was involved with FaithWorks this year. You made it through another week. Give yourselves a hand. I got the, uh, Larry sent, Pastor Larry sent me the following report yesterday. He says, we had 238 volunteers. We completed 90 projects around the St. Croix Valley. We helped the elderly, the sick, people in painful transitions, widows, neighbors, friends, and many others. The interns, the interns, is there an intern in the room? Hey, there's one right there. They get a special shout out from Larry this week. The the youth and the interns, he said, just brought a whole new level of uh, energy to the projects this year and some fun uh, eating contests, as I understand it as well. We served options for women, the Christian community home, comforts of home, a bunch of the elementary schools, parks in the area had work done. Karen Garden estimates between our people and the city government and the county government, we served about 900 meals this week. Larry says there was a joyful buzz of productivity, friendship, and joyful fatigue. So, way to go. Thank you, Faith Community Church. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your response. Thanks for those who are praying for us. Thank you to everyone who gives to make these things possible. Uh, this, is, this is my favorite week of the year. It's still my favorite week of the year. So, all right. Well, this is the last week of our teaching series, I Am Not Myself. And as Shannon mentioned next week, We return to our study of Hebrews, but this series has been a look at gender identity, sexual identity, and following Jesus in the context that we've been given to live in. So if you're visiting today, by the way, just, I I don't know how maybe you got here, maybe you're just checking things out, you just moved to town or something like that, Uh, that's what we're uh, talking about this month. And in the first week, especially for those who are visiting, just to catch you up, in the first week, Uh, We said the root issues are always unbelief and faith. Questions about sexual identity and gender identity are just one of many fruits. The root issue for Christians is always, will we trust what God says? That's That's a challenge that all Christians face, and it's a challenge we face throughout our lifetimes. In the second week, we talked about another root issue, And that is that Jesus just has a radically different understanding of what our bodies are for and what sex is for than the sexual revolution does. Our sex and gender mean something. And God has knit the story of his redemption of all things right into your body, which is a pretty amazing thought. Last week, then, we talked about the machinery of the sexual revolution and why Christians can't just go along to get along And so here in our final week, we're going to spend a little time honestly just scratching the surface then about how we should live. Uh, What are we to do in response to living in the midst of this revolution? We have a saying here at Faith Community, the church was made for moments like this. And these moments were made for us. Okay, so... What should we do? How are we to live? And I'm going to keep it really high level today. I've chosen to talk about a few things that apply to the whole church all the time. You may, uh, I was talking with an elder this week, and he mentioned you might want to just let the church know 
that in a congregation of this size, a lot of people are gonna have a lot of different kinds of callings, depending on their role in life, their station in life, and things like that. I'm actually, we don't have time to get into all that. Those are great conversations to have with each other and with pastors. Today we're gonna keep it real high level and talk about the whole church, okay? Is everybody okay with that? Doesn't matter, we're gonna do it, okay? Okay. Before we jump into God's word, just one more story before we wrap up this series. This is a headline that I stumbled across back in October when we were trying to decide, you know, is this really a subject we want to jump into? The headline was, Influencer Ollie London explains why he detransitioned back to male, blasts hypocritical haters. This was October of last year. Ollie is a 33-year-old internet influencer. He has 784,000 followers on Instagram, almost 900,000 followers on TikTok, and for many years he's been sharing his identity journey online. He came out as non-binary during Pride Month several years ago. A non-binary person is someone who identifies neither as male nor female. And sometime in the last few years he announced that he's also a gender-fluid trans woman and shared pictures and videos of his gender journey and all the procedures and surgeries that he had and his joy at each new stage of the journey. If you had met him on the street this time last year, you you would not have been able to tell that he was biologically male. The controversy for Ali began when he also announced early last year that he now identifies as Korean as well and he shared photos and video of 18 facial surgeries. He changed the shape of his nose, his eyes, his brow line, his temples, his teeth. He even changed the color of his skin with injections. So he was born a white Englishman, and now he identified as a transgender, transracial Korean woman. He explained at the time, I had been unhappy throughout my life with how I looked and was bullied as a child. In 2013, I lived in South Korea, and I just find Koreans so beautiful. They're such nice people and so beautiful, I thought, well, maybe I can change myself and find happiness. I did it because I thought it would make me happy. What happened is that Ali faced immediate backlash. Uh, These are his words, not mine. What he describes as the woke mob turned on him. Koreans in particular were not having it. You you can't just wake up and decide to be Korean, they said. Uh, One Korean writer accused him of, quote, fetishizing and demeaning Korean culture and said that what he'd done was incredibly offensive, especially since it effectively trivializes Korean identities. Over the next few months, the attacks on Ali increased and he announced in October last year, this is the article that caught my attention, he announced in October he was detransitioning to a man. Living as a woman had not brought the happiness that he longed for and he would go back to living as a man. Activists called it a betrayal and anger grew again when a month later, this is November of last year, Ali announced that he had become a Christian and he intends to be baptized, and he would no longer identify as Korean either, although he still felt he was born into the wrong body. I begin with this story because it illustrates so many of the elements that have been a part of the larger story of this series. The first 
is our universal desire for meaning and happiness. Ollie is not a monster. He's not an aberration. He is a person who longs to be happy and especially longs to be loved and accepted by people he admires. And I know what that's like. I bet that a lot of you do too. He was taught somewhere, either implicitly or explicitly, that the answers he was looking for lay within. Somewhere he picked up the idea that the inner psychological happiness that he was looking for, that that's the purpose of life and that it is found primarily in sexual identity. When he says, quote, I did it because I thought it would make me happy. How many people have you seen drive their lives off a cliff saying the same thing about completely unrelated issues? Ali actually makes complete sense once you understand the doctrines of the sexual revolution. How many of us got married functionally believing the same thing? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) But you got married believing that the purpose of life is to find some inner psychological happiness and that the most important step you could take in that direction would be to find the right sexual partner. And then around seven years in, you figure out that did not work. Don't raise your hands. So Ali is not that strange at all. Second, Ali's story highlights the power of technology and the new machine of the sexual revolution. You have probably never heard of Ali London, but in the UK, he's a star. The paparazzi follow him around, and his opinions and his journey matter to tens of thousands of people that are also trying to sort out their own identities, usually teenagers. But if you're a millennial or older, which I'm at, it's like 90, 85% of us probably. If you're a millennial or older, it is probably hard for you to appreciate the impact that technology, and especially the smartphone, have had on the sexual revolution. Today's revolution is just not the movement of your parents or your grandparents. The smartphone has dramatically changed the landscape. 95% of teens have access to a smartphone and 45% report being online almost constantly, some for eight or nine hours a day. Loneliness has become endemic among this up and coming generation. The Surgeon General is calling it a, a, a state of emergency. Pornography is accessible anytime. It has become more acceptable than ever and it is really, really dark and violent stuff. Boys are groomed from a young age to view violence in sex as a normal thing. 13% of girls aged 14 to 17 who are sexually active report being choked by their partner in the act of sex because it's become so normal. Girls are taught that womanhood is a silly hodgepodge of exaggerated physical features and worn out stereotypes. One author puts it this way. She says, girls are are fleeing womanhood like a house on fire. It isn't that they wanna be boys, They just know they don't want to be girls anymore. And into this mix come Tumblr, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, which hosts an array of tutorials on self-harm, anorexia, cutting, suicide. Posting your experiences with any one of these things is an almost instant ticket to hundreds, sometimes thousands of cheering followers. So historically, gender dysphoria 
was a condition that, aff that afflicted primarily preschool boys. It was so rare among girls that prior to 2012, there's, there isn't even any scientific literature on gender dysphoria among girls. Today, the vast majority of teens being treated for gender dysphoria are girls. 70% of gender reassignment surgeries are performed on girls. So when the iPhone was released in 2007, there was one gender clinic in the United States. Today, there are more than 50, and more than 40 of those cater to children. Ollie is an example of someone who found fame and purpose in the midst of that machine. So internet influence, again, if you're a millennial or older, you may be totally out of touch with this, but internet influence is a multi-billion dollar cottage industry. Someone that sold shoes 10 years ago can make millions of dollars now sharing about their LGBTQ journey online. Internet influencers are charismatic, they are compassionate, and above all, always overjoyed in their journey. If you watch Ollie's old videos, he is so excited about everything that he was going through. And they offer the answers that hurting teens are looking for. One observer puts it this way, if you think you might be trans or gay, then you are. Embracing your true self will solve all of your problems. If your parents loved you, they'd support you. If you're not supported, you'll probably kill yourself. On and on it goes. So when I say that it's a machine, I'm talking about a complex mixture of culture and sin and technology and money and corporate greed and ideology and confusion and terrible pain. Terrible pain. Third, Ali's story highlights the uniqueness of gender and sex. Why can't Ali be Korean? Why is, it, why is what Ali did labeled cultural appropriation? It's something like parading around in blackface. But Drag Queen Story Hour is not demeaning to women and must be celebrated. Why is it so easy for us to see that being Korean is something sacred and special, that there's more to being Korean than just the shape of your face or eating certain kinds of foods or even speaking the Korean language. Ali did all of those things. Why are racial stereotypes completely out of bounds, but exaggerated stereotypes about gender are not? Even though we can't put our finger on what it is, how can we be so certain that there's something innately sacred about Koreanness that should be honored and protected? But to say the same thing about girls is sexist and oppressive. Finally, Ali's story points to the complexity of being part of the church today. Somewhere in the United Kingdom is a church that is learning in a new way what Paul means when he says to welcome one another as God in Christ Jesus has welcomed you. Okay, somewhere in the UK this morning, there's a church that is learning to catechize and prepare for baptism a man that has permanently altered his body and is probably coming to church in all likelihood still longing for the love and acceptance that he failed to find elsewhere. And he's heard somewhere that Jesus might have the answers he's looking for. We keep hearing 
that if the church is going to be relevant in the 21st century, it's going to have to change. And what people usually mean by that is that we're going to have to change our confession, that the historic uh, teaching of the church about sex and gender, we're going to have to find some way to rationalize moving beyond that. I would affirm that we need to change, okay, but not by abandoning the confession of Scripture. On the contrary, the issue for confessing churches is not that we've taken God's word too seriously, but that we've not taken it seriously enough. We've not thought deeply and theologically about the gospel and how it intersects with gender and with sexuality. For most of us, words like beauty, goodness, and glory are still not words we would associate with our bodies or with sex. And I, the deeper that we dig, the more clearly we will see its beauty. And the more clearly we'll see people like Ollie, not as an aberration to be mocked, but as sheep without a shepherd. I was talking with a friend sometime, sometime before this series began. I was talking with a friend whose son struggles, adult son, struggles with terrible loneliness. He feels that God's abandoned him and he is considering a romantic relationship with another man. He would not identify as gay, but at least he thinks, I wouldn't be alone. And we said to each other, wouldn't it be awesome to know that if he came here, that wherever he went at Faith Community Church, he would encounter people that he could be completely honest with about what's going on. Wouldn't it be awesome if, to know that wherever he went at FCC, he discovered people who, who can say with integrity to him, I am really sorry this is happening. We know what it's like to be torn between what our hearts want and what God's word says, and we're learning to trust Jesus too. Here's what he's, here's what he's doing in our lives. Let's pray for each other. Let's pray together. Let's walk together. Wouldn't it be good to know wherever he went here, if he walked into a student ministry Wednesday night or a missional community throughout the week or into, into this meeting here, he would meet, you know, he wouldn't be met with a lecture or advice, but an invitation to lunch maybe from a leader, an opportunity to talk more in relationships with people who know what unbelief feels like and can deal gently with him. That's from Hebrews, if you remember Hebrews. Can deal gently with him because we share the same weakness. That was our hope in doing this series together. So let's finish the series with a look at the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. If you turn to 1 Peter, we've already spent a lot of time uh, during our worship set reading from 1 Peter. That'll be page 1014, if you want to borrow Bibles in front of you. It would be great if you had a Bible open in front of you, by the way, because we're going to cover a lot of territory in 1 Peter this morning. <clears throat> While you're turning there, I mentioned last week the New Testament uses exile as a metaphor for our lives in the world today. Well, 1 Peter is like one of the primo places that that happens. Is everybody there? Because we're ready to go. First Peter, chapter one. All right, For, here, here's, how it, here's how the first verse begins. Here's how he addresses the letter. He says, First Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then if you, if you were to look at verse three, so we read this during our worship set. Verse three says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And verses 3 through 12, which we read during our worship set, are actually one long sentence in Greek. It's, it's an extended reflection on the, um, on the glory, the wonder of what God has done in Jesus. And it ends by saying, you know, what God has done is so incredible, even angels long to look into these things. And then he begins the body of the letter this way. So this, we're going to spend most of our time in one verse, okay? This is how he begins the body of the letter, chapter 1, verse 13. Here's the key to living in exile. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's just take each part of that sentence apart. Prepare your minds, he says, for action. The King James Version says it so much better. It says, gird up your loins. <laughs> gird up your, you don't even have to know what that means to agree that that sounds awesome. <laughs> gird up your loins. The, the, the word literally is, is bowels, gird up your bowels. See, ancient people didn't know their physiology the way that we do, but they knew that when we're upset and facing crisis, where do you feel it? Right in your gut. When your world is turned upside down, anxiety and stress and fear happen in here. Today we would say, you know, my stomach is turned in knots. Peter is writing to people whose worlds have been turned upside down, and it can feel that way for some of us. These last 10 or 15, 10, 10, 5 years, somewhere in there, can feel like our whole world is being turned upside down. Okay, well, Peter says, gird up your loins, which is another, just a, an, an ancient way to say, okay, get a hold of yourself. Get a hold of yourself. And then he adds, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. It's just the opposite of being drunk. Okay, now he's not directly addressing substance abuse, although that would certainly apply. He's just saying, get a hold of yourself and don't lose your heads. Crisis has a way of making you forget everything you knew, true or false. Yeah, when you discover that your 15-year-old daughter has been secretly taking the pill, what happens to your brain? You go into full meltdown mode, don't you? And within 30 seconds, you visioned out 10 years and she's living in a van down by the river with her boyfriend, the ex-con. So how is that conversation gonna go when she gets home from school that day? Is it gonna be rational and full of good things? You know, is the outcome going to be pleasant from that conversation? Everybody say, probably not. <laughs> if you're going to survive in exile, Peter says, you've got to keep your head on straight. 
Remember all the things you've learned in 20 years of sermons or Sunday school, if that was a part of growing up for you. Remember all the Bible reading that you've done. Crisis is where we grow the most. Uh, and, and, and God is most deeply met in the midst of crisis. So Peter's advice to the church is, have a good cry, okay? Then put your big boy pants on, put your big girl pants on, and remember everything you've known for however long you've been following Jesus. And let's keep going. He finally says, then this is the last part, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. The return of Jesus is mentioned in almost every single paragraph of this letter. It's, it's, it's a thread that winds from beginning to end. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus returns. It's just a reminder that you are not home. Okay, that's why this is happening. And that everything you're longing for is coming when Jesus returns. Everything that your soul craves, hope, love, belonging, comfort, peace, everything your soul craves, you actually have it already in your relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. But it is incomplete. Okay, it, it gets tangled up in, in, in dwelling sin and the sin of other people and just the ordinary decay of living in a dying world, but it will be complete at the return of Jesus. So if you long for a better world, if you long for a different world, if you long to be loved, if you want to be long, what your heart is aching for is the return of Jesus. And you're not going to find it anywhere in this world. There's, there's nothing here, certainly no romantic or sexual partner that's going to be all of those things for you. So how does it, this is the question today, how does a sober-minded person whose hope is set on Jesus, or how does a church that's sober-minded, what should we do together then in the midst of living in exile? I'm gonna, I'm gonna share three thoughts with you. They're all from 1 Peter. Here's the first one. Uh, first of all, understand the time. Okay, 1 Peter, turn over to, just flip the page to Chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Flip back over to chapter 1. This is chapter 1, verse 23. He says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for... All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains, how long? Forever. And one of my hopes for doing this series would be that understanding how we got here would sober us with regard to the solutions. Carl Truman says, 
You know, I know it feels like transgenderism and parental rights and gay marriage and men and women's locker rooms and all of this just came out of nowhere in the last five years. But he says, the reality is, these are just the fruit of ideas that took root in our culture 300 years ago. And so the church needs to understand, this isn't going to change if we just get the right person in the White House. If we could just get the right people on the Supreme Court is not really going to change the fundamental underlying issues. I'm not saying those things don't matter. That's just not a sober assessment of reality. The roots of the revolution are complicated. And part of the message of 1 Peter to the church is, you may have to patiently endure for a while. The gospel, this is how the gospel keeps us sober-minded. On one hand, the gospel comes to you and says, It is a lot worse than you think. Okay, you are a lot worse than you think. Your neighbor is a lot worse than you think. The machine is uglier than you think. And there are principalities and powers manipulating things behind the scenes that are far older than you, far smarter than you, and far stronger than you. So the question is not, oh my goodness, how did this happen? The question is, why isn't it worse? Okay? On the other hand, the gospel reminds the church that we never get to despair. Like despair has no place in the Christian life because we know the power of God. Okay, so I know it. sometimes it feels like the sexual revolution is this all-powerful, invincible force that's going to irreversibly wipe away all kinds of things from the world. It is just not true. All flesh is like what? Grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The sexual revolution is a man-made, uniquely Western phenomenon. It is not all-powerful. It is not omniscient. It is not omnipresent. And there are really good things that God is doing in the church through the sexual revolution. And I know that there's a lot to grieve and there's a, the losses are real, but even in my children's generation, God is doing good things. And our lives still matter immensely to God in the midst of this. Here's something, just to give you a little perspective, this should blow your mind, okay? There's a, the, the most visited site in Germany And if you think about everything you could go see in Germany, okay, this is why this should blow your mind. The most visited site in Germany is a cathedral in the city of Cologne, if I'm saying the name right. I don't know if I am. The the foundation, it's it's the third tallest church in the world, the second tallest in Europe. Its foundation was laid. Its foundation was laid in the year 1248. And then it was finished 632 years later, in 1880, okay? It survived two world wars, countless regimes have come and gone, and it's still there. The man who laid the foundations of that church in 1248 knew he would never worship in that building. Did it anyway. Because the right thing to do is always the right thing to do whether you're going to benefit from it, whether you're going to see the fruit of it or not. My sense 
is that we are in the middle of something. I don't, we're definitely not at the beginning, but my sense is that we're not at the end either, okay? Doing the right things now are still worth doing, if for no other reason than to have something to give your grandchildren and your children. So prepare your minds for action, Paul, Peter says. Be sober-minded and set your hope on the grace that will be given you at the revelation of Jesus. I want to say especially for those with loved ones who have been swept up by these movements, and especially those with adult kids or grandkids, part of the grace that will be given to us at the revelation of Jesus, I think, will be to see what our prayer and endurance have achieved that we could never see in our lifetimes. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. For me, this is one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture, that God cares about the things I care about and that he wants me to pray. It doesn't mean I'm always right. It doesn't mean I might not have to patiently endure a lot of things, but my Father wants me to pray and what I pray about will matter. I think we will be shocked at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the things our prayers have accomplished in the lives of our loved ones. I think that learning to entrust our kids to the grace of God is one of the hardest areas of unbelief in the Christian life, especially our adult kids. That's why we, sh we shared that story of Laura Smaltz, we've mentioned her several times, and the, and, and the transformation she saw in her parents. I'm just gonna read again something we shared in the first week, Laura says, I began to see that Jesus was not just what my parents did anymore or what they believed. He began to be who they were. And they weren't preaching at me anymore. They weren't even focused on me anymore. I think my parents for so long were focused on trying to fix me. But they realized they couldn't fix me and began to really surrender to Jesus. Understanding the time you know, for those of us with loved ones who've wandered far from God, understanding the time also means understanding that generally life can be pretty long and that what your kid believes at 25 might look silly to him at 55. So hang in there, I guess is what I'm saying. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Second, Second thing that we can do as congregations or as churches is to build Christ-centered community together. <clears throat> One of the things that'll strike you if you read 1 Peter is that in the midst of exile, one of the most frequent commands he gives has to do with the quality of our love for each other. It's almost like he knew Jesus personally. Listen, here's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Flip over to 1 Peter 3.8. He says, finally, all of you 
Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay anyone evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 2, 9. He says, but to the church, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'll, I'll just stop right there. There's a bunch of places like that where the... God's answer to the darkness of exile is the church. Congregations like this one who know who they are and what we're about. You know, you know this, okay? We've talked about this before, but church is not a social club. We are not a spiritual service provider. I am not your coach, okay? The church is a new race of people. That's what we just read. We're a nation within the nation. So right now, the authority of, of Jesus and the power of Jesus remain to some degree hidden. We exist to make it visible to the world. When people walk into this gathering or walk into our ministries on Wednesday night or walk into your missional community, there should be a sense that they've just walked into another country into another nation, even though we speak the same language and things. And the primary markers of your true country are things like love, honor, sincerity, unity, sympathy, tenderheartedness, not reviling it. I mean, we just read a whole bunch of them, okay? Here's a, this is from an ancient document called the Letter to Diognetus. Okay, so this is one of the oldest descriptions of the church that we have outside of the Bible. This is from the first or second or, second or third century. The letter to Diognis, he, he says, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They marry and have children, but they don't kill unwanted babies. They're persecuted by all, yet they love everybody. They share their table with everybody, but they don't share their bed with everybody. They're poor, yet make many rich. They're short on everything, and yet have plenty. That's just an excerpt. So I just imagine Christians in the second and third century getting together and saying, man, what are we going to do about the empire? I mean, this beast, this all-devouring, all-consuming beast, what are we going to do? Their answer is, let's have the neighbors over, I guess. <laughs> let's, let's raise babies together. Let's do that. Let's make more people together. What can Christians do about the machinery of the revolution Invite your neighbors over, I guess. Invite them to meet your Christian friends. Look, you can disagree with me, okay? We're not, we're not going to change American culture here, okay? It's too big for that. We're not going to stop the machine. It's too complex. We are too small. We are not competent for that. We can do this. We, we, can actually, we can actually do everything in here. 
Not perfectly, okay? <laughs> but truly, God has promised his people in the spirit everything that we'll need to do everything that he says to do in here. Before you yawn, as far as I know, this is the only thing that comes with the promise that God's power will show up. We can raise kids together. We can educate our kids together. We can uh, invest in the next generation together. We can teach people what, you know, we can teach young men that you have unique responsibilities toward your female peers just because you're male. We can do all of that. I tried to make the case last week, and I believe this, that this is a contest between gods. This is a contest between very different gospels, and it's going to come down not just to who can articulate their gospel the the most clearly, but who can build cultures that actually reflect what they believe together. And that's going to take some doing. Last thing. Peter says, let the gospel deeply humble you. Okay, if you look at chapter 1, verse 14 again. He says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a reminder that Peter assumes that every single Christian comes out of ignorance too. And that we know what it's like to be driven along by our passions and to battle with our own unbelief. He assumes that. Do not be conformed to the passions of your ignorance, but be holy. Then he says in verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You, you get the sense in these verses that Peter is nervous, that one of the church's responses to their exile will be self-righteous pride. In the exile, if you, call, if you call on God as your father, he says, be careful. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your exile, knowing you were ransomed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So in exile, there should be a healthy sense of reverent fear. We know how easy it would be to hope in something other than God. In all sincerity, so a few of you have asked me, you've approached me and you've said, are you nervous at all about protesters at church? Or that something bad is going to happen online during service? I don't think we're that big a deal. Okay? I, just don't, I, don't think the world, I don't think the world is out there, what's faith community doing this week? I just don't think they care. Okay? In all sincerity, our greatest concern in even approaching this subject with the church is that it has the potential to stir up self-righteousness in our hearts. We're the people who get it. Or even we're part of a church that does the hard thing. 
we're part of the church that tackles the hard topics and so on. I don't want that for us. We want to be a church that is characterized by a reverent fear of God and awe at the blood of Jesus. We've talked about this before, but you approach a religious person, you say, are you a Christian? Their response is, of course I'm a Christian. How dare you? Look at my life. I go to church. I give money. I laugh at the pastor. <laughs> okay. You ask a Christian, you ask a Christian that's in touch with the, the blood of Jesus, the precious, are you a Christian? The response is, can you believe that? Me, a Christian. Of all the people, if you had known the things that I wrestle with in my heart, you'd be shocked. But here I am, a Christian. That's the heart. The root of the issue is unbelief. And you share that root with your neighbor. And until that becomes real, daily real to our hearts, we will be irrelevant. We will be. So let's pray for each other as we go to communion this morning. I just want to give you one minute. You know, a month ago we asked you to pray for us and to pray for Faith Community Church. I want to ask you to do that again. Pray for yourself. Pray for our church. That God would make this so real to our hearts that we would be able to approach the world with integrity to say, I know what it's like to wrestle with a difference between what my heart wants and what God says. And here's what he's doing for me. Just pray right now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that calls us out of darkness into light. We ask together that you'd make the gospel more and more real to our hearts all the time. That we would be a church characterized not by self-righteousness, but a deep humility and gratefulness. Please come and work in our midst. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Scripture says that he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. Let's stand and sing.